Hey everyone, I'm Jesse Sparks, host of the new podcast, The One Recipe, from the team behind The Splendid Table. This pod is all about that one recipe that you lean on. The one you share with friends, the one you make when you need a little love, and the one you know will work every single time. Every week, I talk with chefs and gifted cooks from all over the world about their one, and the story behind it. We're here to help you build your kitchen library one dish at a time. Follow The One Recipe wherever you get your podcasts. 嘎当 in Rukai language means dry. It is a drought-tolerant food. I don't need to water it. It can grow on slopes and survive dry seasons. The plant has a high tolerance for drought, and it's easy to preserve. This is the voice of my friend Alice, an indigenous Taiwanese chef from the Daramak tribe in southern Taiwan. The Daramak tribe is a subset of the Rukai people, one of the 16 officially recognized indigenous communities in Taiwan. I lived with her very briefly back in 2018, and she taught me most of what I know about foraging and indigenous cuisine in Taiwan. We'd spent a lot of the mornings in the mountains picking up ingredients for her restaurant, where she makes traditional indigenous cuisine with local and native species. Alice has a special connection to plants. Her late mother was the last shaman of the tribe, and at an early age, she was taught that plants and humans are on equal footing. Take care of the plants, and they will take care of you. She remembers how the community would come into her family living room for advice, and her mother would cure ailments, physical, psychological, spiritual, all with plants. The plant that she's referring to, gakang, is the Rukai word for pigeon pea. Native to the Indian subcontinent, it's actually been a part of indigenous Taiwanese cuisine for generations. Families grow it on their fields and use it mostly for stews in the chilly winters. My mother will start cooking in the morning. She would put a woodlock there. So when we came back home in the evening, we'd find a steaming hot pigeon beet soup. This is a shared memory of people in the tribe. I'm Clarissa Way, and you're listening to Climate Cuisine, a podcast that explores how sustainable ingredients are grown and prepared in similar climate zones around the world. Now in the hands of different cultures, one ingredient can take on so many wondrous forms. And as the world faces dramatic upward shifts in our base temperature, climate-centric discussions on crops will become increasingly important to the resiliency of our food systems. Today's episode is about pigeon pea. It's a staple crop in the tropics because of how hardy it is and how easy it is to grow. It is also a living fertilizer. It literally takes nitrogen from the air and fixes it into the soil. Years ago, when I first arrived at Alyssa's house, I noticed a whole plot full of these tall bushes I had never seen before. I asked her what they were and she said suto, which translates to tree pea in Mandarin. It's basically the Mandarin word for pigeon pea. The plot had been empty for years and she planted pigeon peas there as a transition crop, not only because it would eventually produce food, but because it would improve the soil. If you've never seen the pea before, they look a lot like black-eyed peas and can be eaten raw, dried, or thrown into soups, or split and made into dolls. For my friend Alyssa and her tribe, 
pigeon pea is almost exclusively used in stews. It's an ingredient that gathers people together and gives them energy. The special season for pigeon pea is winter. That's why people in the tribe will store it for winter, since they mostly use it for soup. Stew pigeon peas with pork knuckles are usually made as a dietary supplement for women. People think the soup makes us energetic, so we will say this is Viagra. We will sun dry them. Every household preserves food like this, especially pigeon peas. Even when it's off season or during drought, we have it to make soup. Nowadays, people in the tribe are starting to make salads with pigeon peas. They cook it first and freeze it. You can put it in as a kind of grain. It tastes like you're eating red beans because it contains carbs. Making this soup is actually quite easy. She takes chunks of wild game, sometimes a deer or a wild boar, and stews it with a pigeon pea. It's flavored with a bit of ginger and a hit of salt. The wild game is what gives the soup flavor, but the pea is what fills people up. In the wintertime, every family in the tribe would have a pot stewing in the center of their kitchen, and it would sit there all day, warming up the house and providing a source of sustenance and fragrance. But outside of the indigenous communities in Taiwan, pigeon pea is rarely used. Most Taiwanese people don't even know it grows here, or what it is. Elsewhere in the world, however, it is eaten extensively. In Jamaica, it's stewed with onions, carrots, and coconut milk. In Puerto Rico, it's served with rice or in a salad. Cultivated widely in Africa, it was transported over to the Americas via the slave trade. Slave ships from Eastern Africa were packed with the pigeon peas. And that's how this old world crop eventually became known in the new world. It's nutty, crisp, and extremely high in protein. But it is perhaps used most extensively in Indian cuisine, where it is holed and split to make dal. Basically, after the pigeon peas are harvested, they have to be dried and then they're taken to what's called a dal mill. Dal is the term for, for legumes. And they are basically dehusked and then split. And the splitting is very important. In fact, the word dal, which is what we use for legumes, uh, for all kinds of legumes, not just pigeon peas, basically means split. It means something that's broken, something that's split. I'm Vikram Doctor. I'm a journalist based in Goa in India. I write on food issues and food security, food sustainability issues, mostly for the Economic Times, India's leading business newspaper. The reason split legumes are so important in India is because once you split legumes, they cook much faster. They require less heat, the cooking time is reduced, and most important of all, they break down faster. They break down and become a sort of like starchy thickener. And that's really important because the basics of Indian food are rice and in the northern parts of India, uh, roti, flatbreads, eaten with a very thick, liquidy, gravy sort of dish, which could include vegetables or meats or other things. So to achieve this liquidy texture, you need thickeners. You need something to thicken whatever you're cooking with. And sometimes the thickening comes just from the natural breakdowns of the vegetables that you're cooking. But very, very often it comes from the breakdown of the legumes. And that happens really fast when the legumes are split. Split legumes also means a faster cooking time and it eliminates the need to pre-soak them. They give off a much more thick and luscious texture, which works better in soups and curries. I'm emphasizing this because this is, you know, something very fundamental to Indian food that a lot of people don't realize. It's not just that we eat legumes, 
but that we eat split legumes. And the reason we eat split legumes is because that breaks down faster and gives us the sort of consistency that's really important for Indian food. So of all the different types of legumes in Indian cooking, why is pigeon pea so fundamental? Pigeon pea is, I think, one of the most popular. I mean, of course, one of the reasons why it's used so widely is that it's a legume that grows very well in tropical climates. The evidence seems to suggest that pigeon peas were domesticated in the Indian subcontinent. But I think above all, pigeon peas are particularly favored. Well, one very basic reason is that they smell wonderful when you're cooking. I, I don't think again, many people realize this because, again, you know, when you're cooking them with many other ingredients, the smell of pigeon peas doesn't really come out. But I suggest you try it one day. Just get split pigeon peas and then boil them and you have this wonderful savory aroma. One of the most sort of satisfying dishes you could get in India is tur dal with rice with a nice dollop of ghee on top. Tur dal refers to split pigeon peas. And spices, a lot of spices. Typically in India, you know, we add spices at the end. Through this process that's called the tanka. Right at the end of the cooking, we fry the spices in oil. And that's important because most uh, spices, the the aromatic ingredients in them are oil-solvable. So the quick frying in oil releases the aromatics. And then you add them to the dish and, and you cook it for a little longer. The other uh, very iconic dish which is cooked in South India is a dish called sambar. If you've ever eaten dosas or itlis, the rice cakes or the flatbreads, you're nearly always given this thick, brown, slightly sour dish to eat with it, like a sauce. And that's basically uh, called sambar, which is a dish of pigeon peas, I mean split pigeon peas, cooked until they break down. And then you add usually tamarind to give the sour note, and then a whole bunch of other spices. Pigeon pea is known for its earthy aroma. And unlike in Taiwan, where pigeon peas are brought out for the winter months, it's eaten all year round in India. There are even festivals dedicated to it. They're dried, so you know that's why they're a staple and they're available all year round. In South India, there is this one iconic harvest festival called Pongal. And Pongal is Pongal is it's interesting because it's it's both the name of the festival and it's also the name of the iconic dish that is made for the festival. And basically the dish is made by boiling rice and legumes, usually pigeon peas, so sometimes moong dal also. And because in this version, it is a sweet dish, you add jaggery, that is unprocessed sugarcane juice, solidified. And then you cook it all together and then you cook it until it's, it boils over, the pot boils over. Pongal really means the, the pot that is boiling over because the boiling over is a symbol of abundance. The food is just flowing out of the pot. And pigeon pea is not just beloved for its wide breadth of culinary uses. It's extremely useful as a companion plant as well. It grows well in, in tropical climates. It is used across the world as a fixer. You use it in rotation with a grain crop. As with all legumes, the, the roots will fix nitrogen into the soil. So, you know, indigenous farmers naturally knew that this was a way of increasing fertility in the soil without adding the sort of chemical fertilizers that we do today. Okay, hold on. What is the fixer? What does nitrogen have to do with anything? And how does pigeon pea actually increase fertility into the soil? The term fixer refers to nitrogen fixer, meaning a plant that takes nitrogen from the air and puts it in the soil. For plants, nitrogen is the most important nutrient available. In fact, plants absorb more nitrogen than any other element. With the help of a bacteria located on their root nodules, plants in the legume family, which include the pigeon pea, take nitrogen gas from the air and inject it into the soil. 
These plants are living fertilizers. And for generations, traditional agriculture communities around the world would use them to develop the soil. It's one of these things that is known to indigenous farmers, it's indigenous knowledge. But sadly, it's something that has been sort of forgotten. Unfortunately, the advent of chemical fertilizers exactly about a century ago in the 1920s pushed aside this idea of this organic natural fertilization process of the soil, which is you know, something that developed in India and of course in other parts of the world too. So today we have farmers using these chemical fertilizers and just shoving them in the soil and that idea of natural rotation with the legume crop no longer happens. And it's a real problem because it is expensive. Farmers are bankrupting themselves, you know, for these like expensive fertilizers are causing problems to soil health. When you're using roots of legumes as fixers, it's not just the nitrogen, you know, you're also adding to the texture of the soil because roots are binders to the soil. It's not just like shoving in chemical fertilizer. It's a win-win situation for the farmer. Not only do they get food from planting pigeon pea, they get better soil. So now the growing organic movement is resuscitating the importance of using pigeon peas. But there is one other problem because legumes are really only important for Indians and actually poorer people in general. They have never really achieved a sort of scientific attention that green crops have brought. He's referring to the crops of the Green Revolution, a 1960s movement that increased agricultural production across the world using technologies like high-yielding wheat and rice and chemical fertilizers. It was largely considered a success and is estimated to have saved up to 1 billion people from starvation. In the 1960s, where, you know, we had what's called the Green Revolution, where a lot of attention was, was focused on improving the varieties of wheat. Norman Bollog won the Nobel Peace Prize for his work on improving wheat varieties, creating these hybrid varieties which suddenly increased wheat yields hugely. And following that, in Asia in particular, starting with the International Rice Research Institute in the Philippines, there was a similar emphasis on high-yield hybrid varieties of rice. So we have increased our production of rice and wheat. Borlaug's work, however, was not met without criticism. His methods caused environmental damage, polluting waterways with fertilizer runoff, and contributed to desertification and soil erosion. And of course, farmers are very happy because they earn more money that way. That sort of attention has never been put on legume crops. The amount of research on increasing the productivity of legume crops has never really been sustained. And as a reason for which many farmers, it's not economical for them to grow legume crops. If they're looking at purely from a, a profit perspective, you know, because if the yield is lower. Again, unfortunately, in places like India, our agricultural support system is very skewed. We only provide support really to these to grain crops and unfortunately sugarcane also, not to legumes. So for this reason, legumes have received a sort of backseat, which is really bad. I mean, there needs to be much more emphasis on growing and improving varieties of legumes, including pigeon peas. But despite the fact that pigeon pea is traditional to India, it's actually being replaced with yellow split peas, which are grown in Canada and then shipped in. And the reason for that actually has to do with the diet of Indian indentured servants in the Caribbean in the 19th century. We have started substituting pigeon peas with yellow peas, which are grown in Canada on a huge scale. Canada grows dried yellow peas on the prairies in huge amounts. I think uh, the province of Saskatchewan is one of the biggest producers of yellow peas. And historically, they produced yellow peas partly as a rotation crop with wheat uh, for to increase the fertility of the soil, but also mainly as an animal fodder. 
It's a high protein crop, so you can feed it to animals. So yellow peas is a hard fork commodity for mostly for the livestock trade. But in the early 20th century, British colonial administrators discovered that there was a human use for it because that was the time in the late 19th century, early 20th century, where a lot of Indian laborers were taken to work on sugarcane plantations in places like the Caribbean, as pretty much as slaves, but they couldn't be slaves and slavery had been abolished by then, but they needed people to work on the plantations. So Indian laborers were taken on the, under conditions of very near slavery and put to work on the plantations. And one of the reasons why Indian laborers were preferred was because it was felt that Indian laborers were cheap to feed. The idea was that, you know, Indians are anyway used to eating beans and legumes and things like that. We don't have to waste extra resources in getting meat for them. Usually the meat that was supplied to slaves was dried cod from Canada. All they needed to find was some sort of legume to feed the Indians. And they decided that yellow peas were ideal because again, it's in the Western Hemisphere, in Canada, also a British colony. So suddenly, you know, yellow peas from Canada started being supplied to the Caribbean to feed Indian laborers. And if you look at Caribbean Indian dishes, from places like Trinidad and Tobago, they, all, they nearly all use yellow peas. They don't use all the varieties of legumes that we have in India. It's nearly all just yellow peas because that was what was supplied to them. Now, what has happened is that the Indian government has realized that they can do this to India, which is really a sort of really weird irony that something that was developed to supply indentured labor during the colonial era is now being used to uh, supply Indians in India. So we now import yellow peas in a huge way from Canada. It's sort of uh, served up as pigeon peas. I mean, it's not directly served, but for instance, like the dish I told you, sambar, which is cooked in South Indian restaurants. In nearly any restaurant now, it's made with yellow peas because it's so much cheaper, not, not with pigeon peas. Similarly, yellow peas are processed into, into legume flour, which, which we use instead of chickpea flour. So how will climate change affect this dynamic, if at all? I think this is really rather tragic that pigeon peas, which are such an iconic and important Indian product, we are now sort of adulterating it ourselves and, and substituting yellow peas simply because it's more economic. As climate change continues, I can only see this increasing. One of the ironies of climate change is that it's actually going to make places like the Canadian prairies even more suitable for cultivation. And exactly that is happening. Uh, things like yellow pea production is increasing in Canada because as the prairies warm up are becoming even more suitable for like large scale production of food. Countries like India, where climate change is going to like really decimate the sort of crops that we grow, we are going to become even more and more dependent on yellow pea production in places like Canada. Because there isn't as much of an incentive to grow pigeon peas, much of the supply is imported in. We haven't really developed the science of pigeon peas. Quite often, the pigeon pea supply falls short. You know, as I said, there's not much incentive to farmers to grow pigeon peas, except suddenly the production falls, the prices rise. But then, you know, farm crops can't you know, increase that fast. One thing the government has started doing is trying to find other places which will grow pigeon peas for us. So to some extent, pigeon peas, uh, we source pigeon peas from Africa. We source pigeon peas from Australia and Canada, which will grow it for us, Australia in particular, and Burma. Uh, a lot of India's pigeon pea production comes from Burma. And one interesting corollary of that is that one reason why the Indian government is quite silent about human rights abuses in Burma is because they know that, you know, we depend on Burma uh, for a, a lot of these legumes. But even this often is not enough. And at the same time, because of the perverse like incentive structures for farming, Indian farmers still are not planting enough. Okay, so say you're a gardener and you live in a relatively hot climate and want to grow pigeon pea. How do you do it? 
We use pigeon pea to plant right next to our fruit trees, and especially the young ones. And we notice that they thrive. They do much better with a pigeon pea planted next to them. Pigeon pea grows to be a rather big and bushy tree that can reach anywhere from 3 to 12 feet tall. We eat them both when they're soft, like regular peas. You can cook them, just throw them in whatever you're cooking or eat them raw. A lot of times we'll just snack on them <laughs> when we're out working. We'll just pick some off the bush and <laughs> eat them. And then you can dry them and they store just like a dried bean. This is Corrine Brennan, a permaculture instructor based in Florida who runs an organization called Grow Permaculture. I met her several years ago at a permaculture convergence in Pine Ridge, South Dakota. Permaculture is a, a way of living regeneratively so that you're not just sustaining existing systems, but you're actually improving them and you're healing things that have been damaged and it's a design approach to that like how do you design your life to accomplish that it has a lot to do with food but it also deals with energy and finance economics community all those things the climate in florida is similar to parts of india and taiwan humid wet and hot so corinne uses pigeon pea as a nitrogen fixer and plants them in between trees you think that they would grow more slowly because they're competing, but that's not the case because the roots are able to pull nitrogen from the air and feed it to the soil. And um, we also chop and drop them sometimes where we just chop off the top. It will come right back and they grow really fast. We plant enough of them that we're okay with chopping some of them and not getting the peas off of them. You could grow them really close together. There's a lot of different ways to use them. And there are also perennials that have a lifespan of up to five years, so you don't have to constantly replant them. Because they grow so fast, they can be pruned frequently as animal fodder or for mulch. And every time you prune them, the root nodules release nitrogen into the soil and fertilize the plants around them. It's all really incredible, and honestly, of all the plants that we've covered this season, I'd say pigeon pea is probably my favorite because of its nitrogen-fixing properties. It's something I didn't even know about until I started dabbling in permaculture and gardening. The concept of free fertilizer seems radical, but it's also nothing new. And hey, even if you're not in the tropics, there are nitrogen-fixing plants that work well in any climate. Most things in the legume family, peanuts, beans, peas, fix nitrogen. A lot of trees like acacia and alder have the same function. And clover, which grows as a weed on most lawns across America, also fixes nitrogen. Many of these plants are not only delicious, but provide a net benefit to the soil. So it's no wonder why pigeon pea has been a farming staple for communities around the world for generations. Climate Cuisine is part of the Whetstone Radio Collective. Next week's episode is all about bamboo, one of the fastest growing plants on the planet. We'll explore how it's used in architecture and of course, how to eat and prepare it. I'll chat with a bamboo artisan in Taiwan and talk to journalists and writers in Indonesia and Japan on how it's consumed there. Hey listeners, I'd love for you to listen to the beginning of Spirit Plate, hosted by fellow Whetstone Radio Collective host Shiloh Maples. You can listen to Spirit Plate wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Shiloh Maples. I'm Turtle Clan. I'm Anishinaabe. I'm a citizen of the Little River Band of Ottawa. I also belong to the Ojibwe people of Swan Creek and Black River. I am speaking to you from my homelands here in the Great Lakes. 
Welcome to Spirit Plate. In this space, we will talk about indigenous foodways as means of resistance, resilience, and revitalization. Within this growing indigenous food movement, there is an incredible story of reclamation and intertribal solidarity. Powerful yet untold examples of natives resisting and thriving. The stories of our foodways are one of the greatest testaments of indigenous brilliance and our beauty of spirit. But before we can talk about indigenous people's food traditions and contemporary efforts to revitalize their food systems, we have to understand the history of disruption that makes this work necessary. In this episode, and throughout season one, we'll discuss some of the social, political, and historical reasons why the indigenous food sovereignty movement is vital. By way of introduction, I'm sharing what inspires me to devote my life's work to revitalizing ancestral foodways, and I invite you to consider how this might look in your own life. I introduced myself in a particular way, in the way that my elders and teachers have taught me. And when I do this, I'm sharing who I am. My clan, Turtle Clan, tells you who I have kinship ties to and about the responsibilities I have to all of my relations. My introduction tells you which indigenous nations I belong to, Ojibwe and Odawa. I introduce myself this way because it reminds me of who I carry with me, who my work is for, and to who I'm accountable. It reminds me of my ancestors or the foundation of my existence and my work, and it calls them into being with me. This introduction also positions me in relationship to this place that I call home. It grounds me in all these relationships, what it means to be a person of the Great Lakes. Like in many indigenous cultures, Anishinaabe history and stories are passed down in oral tradition. In the sacred stories passed down from my Anishinaabe elders, it is said that the first human was put down on earth where the fresh and salt water meet, in what is now known as the St. Lawrence Seaway. In the beginning, our ancestors lived there on the East Coast, until a set of prophecies came to our people. Among them, it was foretold of newcomers and the destruction that would follow them. It was said that our people would be destroyed if we did not move westward. These ancestors were told to follow the path of a particular shell and trace the waterways until we found food that grows on the water. So that's what they did. They migrated westward until they came to the Great Lakes and found our sacred manomen, or wild rice, the food that grows on the water. All along the Great Lakes, various small groups broke off to establish settlements in places we consider our permanent home and the place which we must care for. A thank you to the Climate Cuisine team. Co-producer and audio editor Kat Hong, researcher Olivia Maeda, production assistant Xin Yun, and intern Indio Clarkson. I'd also like to thank Whetstone founder Stephen Satterfield, Whetstone Radio Collective executive producer Celine Glazier, sound engineer Max Katolchak, associate producer Quentin Lebeau, and sound intern Simon Lavender. You can learn more about this podcast at whetstoneradio.com, on Instagram and Twitter at Whetstone Radio, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Whetstone Radio Collective, for more podcast video content. 
And you can learn more about all things happening at Whetstone at whetstonemedia.com.